Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here is uh, Callum, the, uh, the the finest scriptwriter in all of the interwebs, has put together a script. This one's uh, Mona Fat Fat... Oh, God. We're starting off already and I can't pronounce it. Mona Fandy. I did look it up, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a pronunciation for this surname in my, uh, in my pronunciation dictionary, so I just guessed it. And it's going to be guessed throughout this entire episode. You're welcome, world. I'm going to read what Callum has written, and Jen afterwards is going to... Uh, well, if you're watching this, you're going to see some images. If you're listening, then you're going to hear the kind of background music and some sound effects and all of that stuff. You've probably been here before. If you haven't, well, welcome back. And, uh, well, I hope you enjoy the show. Did I say what? Well, it's the casual criminalist. Yeah, welcome. Let's jump in. Do you believe in ghosts? For me, it's a hard no. Me too, Callum. I mean, it's ghosts are just people's brains going wrong. Even if I saw a ghost, if I, I'm in my office right now, and if over there there was a ghost, I don't know what it would look like. Let's imagine it's like a, a man with a sheet over his head. I'll be like, well, that's a man with a sheet over his head. But even if it looked like a ghost, I'd, and, and even if it, you know, in every way it was like super ghosty or whatever, I'll be like, okay, I, uh, I need to get checked out. Let's uh, let's let's book a, a session with a psychiatrist and maybe get an MRI because ghosts aren't real and human brains go wrong all the time. I'm 99.999% certain that every spectral sighting is just a result of those misfiring meat computers inside our skulls. Callum and I, same page. But regardless, even if the spooks and spirits themselves don't exist, you can't deny the power of the beliefs themselves. Yeah, absolutely not. Crazy people believe all sorts of stuff. That's the core theme of today. I'm Just as an aside, I'm always amazed by the number of people I meet who are like, yeah, 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 or like even interact with on the internet or whatever, and it's like, no, no, no but I don't believe in ghosts. But, but, but this one time, and I'm like, no, not the one time. <laughs> Please stop. That's the core of theme of today's episode, a story of black magic and murder from deep in the heart of Southeast Asia. Back in 1990s Malaysia, one bad witch used her fearsome reputation as a celebrity shaman to enthrall the nation throughout one of the most sensational criminal trials in the country's history. I don't know much about Malaysia. Do they believe in witches? I know like witchcraft is a thing. Is it, is it, I don't want to like say it if it's wrong, but isn't, is it Haiti that's famous for like witch, like believing in witchcraft? And I know, I feel like that, oh, I, I say no. I feel like there's some African countries where witchcraft is a thing and people are like, yeah, witches are real, curses are real. And I don't know, there's one where it's like bald guys have gold in their head as well. <laughs> That was weird. If you if you if you don't see this episode, I I am bald. I have no gold in my head. Strange people from faraway lands. This pop singer turned witch doctor's black magic practices won her more fame than she'd ever dreamed of as the country's well-heeled elite flocked to her doorstep. But ultimately, her legacy became a warning to all those who seek a shortcut to power and riches. Don't mess with witchcraft. It's bad for your health. Maybe this is the journey I should, you know, scroll this YouTube stuff. It's not, this, this isn't, this isn't profitable enough. This isn't, this isn't famous. I need to become a wizard, said, I mean, I, I would, I was going to say said no one ever, except for this lady, apparently. The disappearance of Datuk Maslan Idris. Oh God, I'm so sorry, everyone from Malaysia. <laughs> I'm just apologize to the entire nation of Malaysia. And I want to say what's the Malay language. I've actually been to Malaysia. Uh, 
I believe it's the Mal Malay language. I apologize. I'm so sorry. Not that sorry. Pahang State, Malaysia, a region of lush, mountainous rainforests to the northeast of the country's capital, stretching out to the South China Sea on the east coast. Anyone who's ever been there will attest to the natural beauty of this place, but after the dark of night falls upon this land, this pocket of paradise becomes a very different place. I have been to Northeast Malaysia. In fact, the only reason I really went to Malaysia is I was doing the classic gap year backpacking around Asia thing that, you know, I feel like most people from the UK do, or, you know, it's, it's very, very popular. And I managed to get a flight for 150 pounds from Malaysia to London. There was some special deal with a company called AirAsia. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you could fly. There was no food. And it's like a massively long flight, but it's 150 pounds, which was an absolute bargain. So I went to Malaysia just to fly home. And I spent like a, a few weeks there just for a bit of a laugh, you know, before work became a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, just the idea of going somewhere for a few weeks just because there was a cheap flight is, uh, oh my God, my life was different in the past. Malay folklore tells that these forests, like many of the secluded rural spots around the country, are home to dark forces, evil creatures that lurk among the trees, waiting to drain your blood and steal your soul. Even today, these superstitions are still a strong part of the culture. Visit certain towns and villages, and everyone knows someone whose grand friend's cat's uncle was taken by these dark forces. Some superstitious thoughts would no doubt have shared such rumors about Pahang politician Datuk Maslan Idris when he left his wife and kids at home in early July 1993 and never returned. Yeah, he just ran away, didn't he? Or he was killed. Or he died in an accident, or he killed himself. What? There's four entirely reasonable things that happened ahead of ghosts and witches and black magic. But no, <laughs> it was ghosts ridiculous. The U.S. Educated State Assemblyman, a big name with big ambitions within the ruling United Malays National Organization, was officially reported missing after some party engagements in his constituency, Batu Talam. His unexplained disappearance became front-page news, even more so once police discovered the AWOL politician had withdrawn 300,000 ringgit from his bank accounts at several branches in Kuala Lumpur. Isn't ringgit the the currency they use in Harry Potter. <laughs> I feel like there's definitely something to do with ringgits. Unless, I mean, I don't know. It's been a long time since I read Harry Potter, and honestly, I don't really care for it that much. Oh, which is the equivalent of about $70,000 at the time. Some speculated that old Maz was just off on a mad one. A <laughs> $70,000 mad one. However, that wasn't exactly in character. Datuk is an honorific title equivalent to Sir in the UK, and you wouldn't expect a knight of the realm to blow off his commitments for a week-long bender. Wait, Callum, have you seen some of the people who are knighted? Like, rock stars get knighted, and uh, I mean, I guess they're all sort of old and, and a bit you know a bit past it by the time they get their knighted but i definitely would have put it past them oh maybe sir rod stewart i suppose that god damn cal i don't read these ahead but callum and i are on the same page today are we not as the weeks passed and no trace of the ambitious assemblyman could be found his family started to worry and those whispers of supernatural suspicion grew a little louder of course most people take these kinds of old wives tales with a grain of salt no serious police detective would class taken by demon as a credible lead yeah that they find his body goes to the mortician and the mortician's like yeah yeah what's his cause of death demonized <laughs> However, for the cops working the Maslan Idris case, those terrifying tall tales were about to become a whole lot more realistic. 
The break came weeks after the disappearance, and from an unlikely source, some beat cops in Pahang were out on patrol when they happened across a man off his face on drugs, which is not something they take lightly in Malaysia. Yeah, I feel like Malaysia is one of those countries where you get there, and it's like there's a big sign in the airport, you know, at arrivals, which is like, yo, if you're smuggling de- drugs, you're going to be put to death by hanging and there's going to be a very short trial it's really scary for like it's those places you're like, oh my god i hope i don't have any drugs on me i'm pretty sure i don't have any drugs i'm quite sure i don't have any drugs <laughs> and they're like wait do i have drugs <laughs> he's like no of course i don't have drugs you don't take drugs to an airport i'll like search my bag before i go anywhere i mean i have a story once when i once almost accidentally smuggled drugs but that's the closest i've ever got and it was pot and i was leaving amsterdam on a train should i tell this story let's just say allegedly it wasn't me but i accidentally left a bit of pot in my bag after visiting amsterdam and i was on an overnight train i was i'm not allegedly i'm not sure if i'd left the netherlands but i was like oh i should probably get rid of this and so i flushed uh, someone who's not me allegedly flushed it down the toilet on the train and then later on some uh like border guards or whoever came on with their sniffer dogs and they were going at my bag and then i was like oh that's where it was wasn't it (laughs) it's pretty intense and that's why i'm still free today because i flushed it down the toilet and in case you're wondering no this wasn't our renegade politician on a come down from 70 grand's worth of coke it was actually a 23 year old guy named yuraimi hussin the police arrested the young man and took him to the station for questioning at this point harami was only facing the prospect of a little jail time at the absolute worst but before he could sober up he actually ended up implicating himself in a far more serious crime his statement was rambling and incoherent at first but the police were able to pick up some crucial pieces of information most importantly a name maslan idris it appeared that jeremy was confessing to being involved in the disappearance of the missing politician he was probed for more information over the following hours spitting a strange tale of clandestine deals and magic spells par for the course on drug arrests i'm sure and yeah there's a lesson don't do drugs especially then don't get arrested and <laughs> admit to crimes they weren't arresting you for during Jeremy's interrogation, he mentioned another name that pricked the ears of the police, Mona Fandy, the arrested man's employer. She also happened to be the owner of a certain house in the jungle, where Jeremy had claimed the most crucial piece of evidence lay waiting to be found. That's how officers found themselves driving deep into the mountains in the west of Pahang on July the 22nd. They are on a chase. This sounds this sounds like a good old-fashioned, like, detective adventure Jeremy had described the place to them a bungalow house in the middle of nowhere more specifically he told them that dilapidated storeroom out back would be of particular interest if things were really as he described then perhaps this would be the break that they'd been waiting for and sure enough when the detectives entered this dingy little brick outbuilding it was as he said a patch of freshly laid concrete in the center of the floor but just before we get into any of that today our fantastic sponsor is hello fresh what is hello fresh well they give you fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes which sounds all fantastic until you hear what it gets even better because they deliver it to your door you don't have to go to the grocery store and honestly like i don't mind cooking like getting into a complicated recipe and spending a couple of hours doing it is a thing i like doing I get that most people don't, which is why HelloFresh, their recipes, it takes like 30 minutes or something crazy to do. It's super fast. Um, But for me, I despise going to the grocery store because you go there, they don't always have everything you want. You look at it, it's like, oh, that's the chicken I want, but that, it, it doesn't look as fresh as I would like, or they don't have the like, 
the, the corn-fed chicken that I particularly want or the organic this and that because I'm fussy. With HelloFresh, you don't have to worry about any of that because they ship you super high-quality ingredients direct to your door, which is fantastic because, you know, grocery store sucks. Fall is busy, but HelloFresh or autumn, as we'd say, and it says fall here in my talking points. So I'm like, <laughs> that is autumn. Uh, autumn. Fall is is busy, but HelloFresh saves you time that you'd otherwise spend meal planning. Yes, um, you just go online, you select what you want. It's super easy. HelloFresh's family-friendly menu is a big win for the back-to-school season with easy, delicious recipes for drama-free dinners. Yeah, my kid is not old enough to go to school yet, but when they will, I'm sure I will absolutely appreciate this even more. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie-smart choices to extra-special gourmet options. For me, I'm like, forget that calorie-conscious stuff. No need for vegetarian. I'll take the calorie-loaded, tasty stuff. But that's just me. Maybe you care about your health. <laughs> In that case, go for something healthy. There's really something for everyone to enjoy with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Go to HelloFresh.com Casual14 and use code Casual14 for up to 14 free meals with free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com Casual14 and use code Casual14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Fantastic. Thank you, HelloFresh, for the sponsorship. Do check it out. And let's get back to the video. The storied career of Mona Fendi. That's how the shit-faced revelations of Jeremy Hussin brought the cops to the doorstep of Mona Fandy, a glamorous, wealthy ex-pop star. Hardly the sort of person you'd expect to be implicated in a suspicious disappearance, but as the detectives took a closer look at her, some crucial pieces started falling into place. Fandy was a controversial figure in the community for reasons that will soon become clear. But even more pertinent- it's because she was a witch! But even more pertinent were her whereabouts at the time of Maslin Indris's disappearance. She and her husband, Mohammed Afandi Abdul Rahman, just so happened to be in Kuala Lumpur when the withdrawals from the missing man's accounts were made. That same day, they bought a brand new Mercedes in cash, splurged on clothes and jewelry, and even scheduled a facelift so the 37-year-old singer could turn back the clock to her glory days. Oh my god, you need a face. 37? I'm 34! It's like, oh my god, am I three years away from, like, people genuine, the age where people consider facelifts? Or is this just, like, you know, some Michael Jackson sh where it's like, why so much plastic surgery, Michael? You looked good, and now you look weird. I mean, now you're dead. This is inappropriate. But Michael Jackson did look weird. And I know he had that disease where his skin turned a different color. But it is like, he also had, like, other plastic surgeries, right? <laughs> Stop making fun of Rem. I'm gonna get so cancelled. Stop making fun of Michael Jackson, he's dead. <laughs> oh, although then there was that documentary which didn't just make fun of Michael Jackson, but made some pretty serious accusations, which we're not gonna repeat, because uh, I like not getting sued. Not that they were all that glorious, Mona, real names Nermesna Ismaili, never really achieved all that much success as a pop singer. Back in 1987, she forked out cash to self-release an album called Diana One, which featured the timeless banger we all know and love, Ku Nyanakan Laguini. 
Mm -hmm. Actually, joking aside, you can easily find it online, and it's not that bad. It'll be getting a spot alongside Charles Manson's tracks and our upcoming Cash Crim compilation album. But unfortunately for Mona, the people of 1980s Malaysia weren't quite as enamored with her music as I am. I've <laughs> become enamored with this woman's music. Uh oh. After a few TV appearances, the hype died out, and she was forced to leave the music industry behind. She did, however, keep her stage name. After all, her next career move was still technically a kind of performance. Just one with a little more goth flair didn't they say she was didn't we say she was wealthy so she must have done okay after the pop music money dried up mona and her husband spent their 30s working as traditional shamans known as Bomers. these witch -type doctor type characters are thought to be masters of magic and traditional medicine but the catch is they're just as likely to curse you as heal you definitely not the source of person sort of person you want to meddle with also not the person you'd ever want to go and see can you imagine going to the doctor and it's like yeah yeah, yeah i'm not feeling very well and there's an equal chance they'll give you a medical or maybe break your leg They'd be like, no, 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 I'm just going to go to the doctor that doesn't break my leg or have a chance of breaking my leg. It's like 50-50. You'd just go to the actual doctor, wouldn't you? Rather than the crazy, you know, flip the coin doctor. What is wrong with people? It's a question I find myself asking myself a lot on Casual Criminalist. <laughs> as well as going, you psycho, apparently. I read the comments. <laughs> The Boma culture was a kind of uneasy cultural truce with Islam in Malaysia. They'll use the Quran and claim to be following Islamic teachings, but conventional religious leaders usually say that these witch doctors are illegitimate and it's a dangerous sin to dabble in witchcraft. Despite all that, their influence is often extremely strong. While most Bomas are small-time village shamans, others can become multi-millionaires from their trade. Think of them like your oriental televangelists, flashy showmen trading spiritual assistance for big bucks. That's the level that Mona Fandy and her husband were aiming for when they got into the black magic game. Luckily for her, a 37-year-old attractive female Boma stood out against a sea of old men, a lot of whom look about as mental as you'd expect from a witch doctor. I gotta say like that, that that televangelism thing is so wild. What's that one where there's the guy and he's like, their, their interview is like, why do you have a private jet, you know, that you bought with your church's money, which uh, it, it's American, of course. So I don't think, you know, they're like exemptual taxes and shit. And he's like, why do you have a private jet? That These being interviewed, he's like, I don't like riding with those demons. It's like, oh my God, did you just call regular people who could fly commercial demons? Holy shit, my dude, you're going to hell, allegedly. I mean, it's also not real. This guy probably, this guy's like one of those guys, it's like probably doesn't even believe in Jesus and stuff. He just believes in lots and lots of money. Many people from around the region were interested in Mona's supernatural services. She became a semi-famous shaman, gaining far more fans and riches than she ever did through singing. Eventually, the glamorous shaman couple were sitting pretty with a luxury Kuala Lumpur mansion, multiple second homes, fancy cars, and influence running up into the higher echelons of society. Somewhere along the way, they decided to expand their operation by hiring some help. This was Jeremy, the witch doctor's assistant with a penchant for amphetamines. He would aid the couple in preparing their rituals, rumored to be performed for high society individuals looking to boost their material wealth and prospects in return for silly amounts of cash. It's like, yes, the more money you give the witch doctor, the more money the, the, the universe will return onto you. I mean, that's a crazy ass lot. That's like the secret logic. Mona even claims to have rided members of Malaysia's ruling party with talismans which made their political careers. Mm -mm, she didn't. Visiting a bomber is actually a more common practice than you'd think among older politicians, so much so that in 2011, ex-PM Dr. 
Mahathir Muhammad had to issue a statement advising against it. Given that, I think it's safe to assume that Mona was probably telling the truth, which is most likely how she made the acquaintance of Datuk Maslan Isdris back in 1993. Okay, so she did give them talismans. It's just crazy that people believe this. It blows my mind. A deal with the devil. It's not clear which one approached the other first, but what we do know is that Mona Fandi and Mr. Idris arrived at an agreement sometime earlier that year. She was to provide him a pair of talismans, a cane, and a songcock, a traditional hat, that was supposedly worn by the former president of Indonesia, Sukarno. I feel like I know how to pronounce that because I might have made a video about Sukarno on my biographics channel. I'm not sure. I've made so many videos that I lose track. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, I have several YouTube channels. One of them is called Biographics. We do biographies of famous people from history. And what did Mona Fandi want in return for the magical cane of warding, plus two charisma, and the helm of Sukarno, plus 20 fire resistance? <laughs> not much at all, just a little token gesture. 2.5 million Malaysian ringgit, which is about six hundred thousand dollars jesus christ if it's that easy to get rich i'll be a bomber as well i do have that pair of nike air maxes once worn by churchill after all one million dollars or best offer amazingly mr idris never flinched at the cost of his new gear a small price to pay for success beyond his wildest dreams the agreement saw him pay a fifth of the fee up front and offer up 10 land deeds as collateral for the remainder but the politician was about to discover that dealing with dark magic has bigger consequences than just the financial. Any deal with a bomber is prone to backfiring if you're not careful, meaning that you'll end up cursed, penniless, haunted, or worse. Oh no, I'm haunted. If only that was a real thing. And unfortunately, it seems like Mr. Idris must have incurred the wrath of our pop princess, witch doctor, with a dispute over the money owed. Maybe he got a touch of buyer's remorse when he realized his fancy new talismans were actually just charity shop junk upsold by a con woman. Or maybe a couple of bad days at the office proved that they never had any luck giving properties that he was promised. Whatever the case, it appears that he refused to hold up his end of the bargain. But of course, when he filed his complaint with Mona, she adamantly denied being a charlatan. The problem wasn't her, it was him. Maslin Erdris was positively dripping in negative energy. How the hell can you expect to become Prime Minister with all of that bad juju? Despite his rudeness, Mona Fandi still only wanted to help Maz become his best self, so she scheduled a cleaning ritual that would help him better channel the powers of the items and shift all that bad luck from his shoulders. <laughs> yeah, and here's a bill, mate. At this point, he was still willing to indulge the shaman, probably because he knew full well that a refund wasn't on the cards. But what he didn't expect was that the bomber had a very different kind of ritual in mind than the one she described. A diabolical diva fully planned on collecting the remaining debt, no matter what. Oh my god, is she gonna kill him? <laughs> I get the feeling it's not going to be something like a curse because then we'll just then we'll just laugh it off and be like, well, that's not real. But she's going to murder him, isn't she? <laughs> and here we go. What a psycho. The Ritual. That's why Mazenindris left his house that evening on July the 2nd, 1993, and drove in the dark to the rural village of Kampung Peruas. It seems that he never told his wife where he was going, probably because he just blew the kid's college fund on a fancy walking stick. And let's be real, if your husband disappears in the night to give thousands of dollars to another woman, hundreds of thousands of dollars, no wife's going to believe it's just his side witch. <laughs> 
So the politician made his way to Mona Fandy's unfinished bungalow house in the middle of the forest that night, and she quite rightly assumed that nobody would know where he was. Maslin drove up to Kampung Peruas, following the directions given by the shaman couple. He turned off the paved road and onto a dirt track that led into the trees, snaking up the hillside. I feel like if she's just going to kill him, no one knows where he is. But when someone very quickly collects all these like land parcels that she's like uh, that she's been promised by him, it's going to be extremely suspicious. And people are going to be like, "The witch killed her. The witch definitely killed her." But uh, maybe this feel the, the, the script in front of me feels too long for that to be exactly what's going to happen. So I get the feeling there's probably going to be some strong police incompetence involved just because they usually is. Superstitious types wouldn't dare walk these parts at night, especially with a bomber practicing in the area. Legend has it that their magic draws in the dark spirits of the forest, which they can even command to do their bidding. It's the sort of spooky story that mothers tell their kids to make sure that they come home before dark. Don't play too late or the bomber's boogeyman will get you. And even though Maslin Idris was a fully grown man who didn't have time for ghost stories, things start to seem very different when you're driving through the woods at night alone. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. 100% agree with that. If I was driving through the Malaysian wilderness in the middle of the night on my way to see a witch doctor, I wouldn't be like, the ghosts are going to get me. I'd be like, there's probably murderers in these woods. I'm not going to get out and pee. I'm not going to stop because of the murderers. Not the ghosts, the murderers. I mean, I'm sure there aren't any murderers, and the chances of getting murdered are super low. But I mean, the chances of getting killed by a ghost are even lower, because they're not real, are they? Peering into the spaces between the trees where the car headlights dropped off to a deep darkness, those bedtime stories would no doubt have started to creep back into his mind. Was that just the toppled bar of a tree, or could it have been a pachong, a restless spirit raised from the grave, still wrapped in its calf and burial shroud? A flash of yellow eyes between the trees, probably a wild cat, or maybe it was the Oran Minyak, an oil-coated humanoid that stalks and assaults young women. Well, good news, you're not a young woman. And that thing isn't real. The squeak of the car axle on uneven dirt road, or the shrill laugh of the Pontianak, the Malay vampire women who prowl the woods looking for victims to slaughter or possess. As he neared the house on the hill, Mazen Idris glanced over at the 38 Smith & Wesson revolver on the passenger seat, just in case. The politician parked out front of the unfinished bare concrete bungalow and walked up the driveway, flanked with tall weeds and exposed to the dark forest all around. The ghosts of his imagination would have put a spring in his step, but what he didn't quite reckon with was that the real monsters were waiting for him inside, and, as is usually the case, they were very much human. The entrance to the windowless building was faintly illuminated by the glow of electric light around the doorframe. The door swung open as he approached, and Maslin was welcomed inside by Bomoch Afandi and the servant. Jariah Imi. Oh, God. Dude, you're going to get murdered. You're for sure going to get murdered, my man. What are you up to? The outside of this witch's... Why are we laughing? The outside of this witch's woodland cottage wasn't quite the typical star found in European fairy tales, but the interior looked much as you'd expect. A dim, empty chamber, a few curtains hanging from poles enclosing a sleeping area, loads of creepy witch stuff, and a couple of chairs, one of which Maslan set himself down on as he prepared for whatever the night might bring. The snub-nosed revolver now sat heavy in his jacket pocket. It took a moment to adjust to the air inside the main room, heavy and humid, thick with a sour stench from the rows of bottles and jars on a shelf that rang along the wall. These were filled with oily liquids, fibers of hair, hopefully animal in origin, exotic plants, plants and other discriminant lumps of 
pickled something or other, everything you'd ever need for a career of demon summoning and political swindling. I have to say, I'd feel really a lot, like, pretty comfortable about having a gun. I mean, I'm sure, like, guns aren't the, like, be-all, save-all magical thing. But if I've got a little revolver in my pocket, I'm going to feel pretty confident that I'm going to be all right. But this dude isn't. Somehow, he's not. On the wall opposite was a portrait of the lady of the manor herself, Mona Bandy, painted in opulent ceremonial garb. The painting mimicked the slightly manic smile on her face as she welcomed the guest and gathered her ingredients for the ritual. While preparing her ingredients at the small altar, decorated with figurines of obscure folk, folk deities, she explained to her client what was about to happen. He was to be taken to the kitchen, in which there was a raised platform in the center. Maslin would have to lie down on this slab while the couple performed a Mandy Bunga flower bath ritual on him. It doesn't actually sound all that bad. Just chill and have a witch toss some magic bath bombs at you. It's a niche experience, but people will pay a pretty penny for far weirder stuff. I'm told. Yes, indeed. It kind of sounds like right now he's just being laid out on like a kitchen, uh, on, a, on a breakfast counter, doesn't he? You know, oh, what's it called? A kitchen island. Like they've got a kitchen island. Yeah, it's like lay down on a kitchen island. <laughs> okay. And to sweeten the deal even further, the supernatural spa day would guarantee him riches and success beyond his wildest dreams. So what's not to like? Maslin would be familiar with the ritual already. It's actually a common practice derived from royal households, but now enjoyed as a kind of traditional relaxation treatment by people from all walks of life. Nothing to worry about at all. Mona's pleasant tone helped further calm the man's nerves as, as the time to begin approached. As he settled into the couple's welcoming hospitality, he probably felt less threatened at being alone in the woods with these eccentrics and definitely less inclined to whip out that revolver and start blasting. The shamans and their assistant were a picture of professionalism, and Maslin allowed himself to start believing in their magic again. Things would soon be back on track. At Mona's signal, Maslin Idris was led through a doorway and into the kitchen. He lay down on the top of the stone slab, which was already dressed with petals. The two bomber donned their ceremonial robes and then started dropping flowers over the politician and chanting incantations to cleanse him. Seven blessings, granted as they poured basins of fragrant, ro- fragrant water over his body. This does sound just like a super weird spa day. So it's like you see, I I don't like spas. My wife likes spas, and so she'll sometimes drag me along. Like we'll go away for the weekend or whatever, and it's just she'll go do some spa shit. And it's like I'll just I feel way more relaxed. I'll just go have a beer. It's like the hotel's got a bar. Cool. You go do your spa shit, and I'm just gonna chill out in the bar and like read a book and have a beer. Um, but you look at this like all of this weird shit going on with like petals in like a bath, and there's like milk water or mud or like chocolate involved. I'm like, what is all this crazy shit? Like. <laughs> whoever came up with this being relaxing it's like why am i in a bath of mud oh it's very no it's not you're just in a bath of mud (laughs) it's just weird sure people will be like simon it's incredibly relaxing okay i I don't believe you maybe i should try it (laughs) at one point we're gonna get a sponsor for this podcast it'll be like yeah mud baths and i'll be like best experience ever if that ever happens don't believe me i won't do it because generally i pick sponsors that i actually believe in and by generally, I mean always. Like I don't work with sponsors who I think are shit. Just to be entirely clear. And I mean, I guess that's because this video is the world's most shameless promotions. And it's brought to you by Rage. It's not. It's not. They keep emailing me. So you've never seen my show. When the ritual reached its climax, Mona Fandy said, Put your head back. 
Close your eyes, and soon you'll feel the money falling down from the sky. Hopefully, we're talking about banknotes because nothing ruins a nice soak like a roll of pound coins to the forehead. But of course, no money fell at all. Mona had something very different in mind to wrap up the ceremony. It's gonna be murder, isn't it? A silent moment passed as Mazen Idris laid his head back, eyes closed, neck fully exposed. The flower bath was supposed to dispel the politician's bad fortune, but what he didn't know was that his luck had already ran dry. The last thing he felt was the heavy thud of an axe driven right into his throat. Holy we couldn't have just used a knife. I mean, you couldn't have poisoned him. You had to use an axe to the throat. <laughs> really? Thanks. Brilliant. Jeremy Hussin looked, loomed over him with the hatchet in hand as a shower of blood poured onto the bare floor. The first cut almost severed the victim's head entirely, which now hung by just a few red ropes of sinew and tendon. Thanks for that, Callum. <laughs> Brilliant. Graphic. Two more sharp swipes parted it from the neck entirely. Now, at this point, in which the poor man lay dead and beheaded on that kitchen platform, the story becomes a little less clear. It's thought that it was about midnight when the axe struck Maslin's neck, and judging by the state of the body, which you'll see in a minute, I mean... <laughs> Callum, are you going to describe this to us in detail? Because I can't imagine there's a photograph of this. And if there is, Jen, don't put it on the screen for the video version. Because that is exactly how YouTube decide never to give us any money ever again. Uh, but I imagine it's going to get a pretty graphic description. It seems as if the bombers might have actually performed another darker occult ritual on the corpse afterwards. Is there anything much darker than being slammed in the neck with an axe? I mean, I realize I just immediately in my mind yes definitely yes why did you even question it simon this involved levels of corpse defilements brilliant that would make dr frankenstein raise a judging eyebrow but we'll get to that in a minute for now almost all i'll say is that the morning after his grisly affair mona fandy and her husband fandy took off for kuala lumpur leaving their crack adult igor to deal with the aftermath our Faustian politician never did get the riches that he was promised, but after all, the ritual was never meant to make him wealthy. The bombers, on the other hand, got quite a handsome payday. Not quite enough to cover that $2 million debt for the talisman, but in reality, they were probably worth about £4.50 anyway. You've already heard about the spending spree the two witch doctors treated themselves to, so let's instead focus on what young Jeremy got up to after the crime. Judging by the state of the murder scene, he'd been a very busy man indeed. It was his handiwork that the detectives were faced with in the dingy storeroom on July the 22nd, 1993, after being directed there by the Axeman himself. Ah, yeah, 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 the drug-addled confession. Brilliant. A team was brought in to smash through the concrete cap and dig through the earth below. Just short of six feet deep were the badly decomposed remains of Datuk, Mazen, and Idris. He was not in good shape. And I'm betting that's not just because he was super decomposed. <laughs> his body is going to have been ruined great the overpowering stench of decay ended up erupting from the hole like a geezer when the police shifted the last layer of dirt revealing a mass of assorted human pieces piled up in a grotesque mess like a picasso piece recreated from butcher's offcuts very nice nice use of language there callum Drymy had chopped the body into 18 pieces before dissecting it in the pit the murder weapon and a bunch of knives used for the dismemberment were recovered from the scene. Absolutely awful for the victim, but also for the poor bastards that had to remove and study the remains. In the coroner's notes, it was mentioned that the body appeared to have been partially skinned, which is why I suspect a bit of extra witchcraft went on post-mortem. However, it's not quite clear how much of this was done with the bombers present and how much Jeremy did after they took off. 
Why not? Well, by this point, the young lad had sobered up, got legal representation, and sure as hell wasn't willing to take the entirety of the blame for the killing. Oh man, that's the worst hangover ever. It's like, oh man, what happened last night? Oh, well, you were on the streets, you got arrested by the police, and then you, uh, you, in your drug adult state, admitted to skinning a man and burying him under some concrete in the middle of the jungle. You'd be like, ah, oh, not again. <laughs> Don't do drugs or murder people also just don't if you don't murder anyone it doesn't matter if you do drugs because <laughs> you're not going to get arrested i mean you might get arrested by the police but then you don't have a murder to confess to which is you know better than the other option of being a murderer obviously why am i stating this let's move on this resulted in some conflicting testimony and questions that were never fully answered what we do know is that jeremy appears to have stayed at the bungalow for weeks after the crime the first days were probably spent burying the body, cleaning the mess, and burying the revolver in the woods at the edge of the garden. After that, it's thought he spent upwards of two weeks sleeping in the room adjacent to the kitchen, where he ended Maslin Idris's life. As contemptible as the killer was, it takes a pair of brass balls to stay in a witch's lair right after burying your victim beneath the floor. Can't begrudge the man a little bit of class A's to cope with that. The Bahang Witch Trial at the time Jeremy was picked up on the drug offense, his two employers had no idea that the net was closing in on them. And after the body was recovered, it didn't take long to track down the black magic maestros to their Kuala Lumpur mansion and slap the cuffs on them too. At this point, they probably regretted not just giving Jeremy a little pay rise for his troubles. Whatever they were giving him, it wasn't enough. Although, I don't know, we don't know much about him. He seemed to be quite into it. Like, he skinned the body. It's probably like, no, 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 you don't need to pay me. I just like skinning bodies. <laughs> ah, why, Jeremiah? It would be another year before the trial got underway, but in the meantime, the press had a field day with the story of this glamorous showman shaman and ex-pop star no less than the horrific ritual murder that she orchestrated. As I said before, Malaysia is by and large a deeply religious country, and a majority of people also believe in the power of this dark magic from old folklore. Our gal Mona Fandi became the smiling, botoxed face of those fears. Each time fresh details of the crime appeared in the papers, readers shuddered at the thought of coming under the witch doctor's deadly influence. She became a flesh-and-blood version of those evil spirits of folklore and bedtime stories. But there was another side entirely to her character. Mona almost seemed to be using the trial as a chance to relive her pop star days. Mona was always waving and smiling for the cameras, a constant uncanny smile, hyper-exaggerated by that surgery she allegedly enjoyed on her victim's dime. I mean... Yeah, if you can't be famous, infamy is the next best thing. Throughout the trial, her, I, I honestly, like, people, I think people believe this. Like, judging by the crazy shit people get up to online in order to get, like, views on a video. Just look at the entire prank thing. It's like, what, what pranks and fake pranks and all this crazy on YouTube. I hate it all. I hate it all. Throughout the trial, her makeup and colorful outfits were better suited for a runway than a courtroom. I mean, this was the biggest audience she'd ever enjoyed, bigger than her short-lived pop career. You can't turn up looking like a slob. Journalist Estenar covered the story for The Star and chronicled some of the ways in which Mona Fandy's aura of terror 
affected all involved. She even had the bad fortune of coming face to face with the magician murderer a number of times over the course of the proceedings. Nara recalled the beginning of the trial in 1994. Handcuffed, the ever-smiling bomber nodded to three of us who, who covered the inquiry the year before and spooked us by saying, you, you, and you. I know you, Apakabar. Don't think I've forgotten your names. Much to our discomfort, she didn't. As she was ushered towards the Tamalok High Court by the guards, she absolutely lapped up the attention. For Mona, any publicity was good publicity, even when most of your audience thinks you're a monster. The guards parted the crowd in front in order to make way for the accused, and someone shouted out, Mona, I love you, from among the crowd. Her surgically enhanced smile stretched out even further than before. For someone with a serious case of main character syndrome, all this attention was a dream come true. I've never heard of main character syndrome, but I absolutely understand what it means. <laughs> but aren't we all the main character? I feel like you live your life and you're like, yeah, I'm the main character. But then you're, uh, you know, everyone thinks exactly the same thing because, you know, obviously you, you are you. On one occasion, she offered to sing for the judge and later even made a false claim to royal heritage. Other days, she signed autographs for fans or passed out philosophical notes about inner peace. In the mornings before court, prison guards would sometimes show her articles about the case in the newspapers. If she was particularly pleased with the coverage, she'd tell the assembled journos, thank you for putting in such nice stories and pictures. Hardly the sort of behavior you'd expect from someone accused of murder, especially when that crime carries a mandatory death sentence in Malaysia. The juxtaposition both fascinating and terrified onlookers. How could this larger-than-life figure capable of such horrific violence seem to relish every moment of her own doom? Because if you're narcissistic enough, that's more important than your life. Which is an insane statement, but I mean, just look at this. This is the explanation. You're just so wildly narcissistic that you're like, yeah, 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 I'd rather die than be nobody which is crazy unless perhaps she had already made a dark deal to dodge the reaper people were already creeped out enough by the idea of ritual murder and mona's bizarre behavior only added fuel to the fire it wasn't long before rumors of supernatural happenings began to swirl around the trial whispers came from the prison claiming that strange things would happen in and around mona's cell objects moving by themselves strange sounds unsettling dreams yeah i mean no no doubt the unsettling dreams are because this is a crazy thing it's like she's not in your dreams it's just you're having crazy dreams because of all this crazy shit that's going on if i have a dream about this tonight i'm not going to be like mona entered my dreams i'm just gonna be like no it's because i made a casual criminalist about it isn't it obviously what are we talking about let's move on with our lives please it was as if she still emanated an energy that drew in all kinds of spooky stuff residents of the area around the prison even reported seeing the bomber walk free in the middle of the night apparently she used her supernatural powers to leave the jail cell in the middle of the night wandering off to get a drink for herself and then returning before dawn prison officials decried these rumors as ludicrous and I'll tend to agree. Could she have pulled off a supernatural Shawshank redemption with none of the sewage crawling, but then chose to return to her cell like a good prisoner? Still, these stories only enhance the powerful sense of dread lingering over the courtroom every day that the glamorous Pontianak appeared. I'm totally losing track of all these Malaysian words. I'm like, wait, so she's a Bokhmer. She's also a 
Pontianak. I totally... Did we even mention that before? I'm so sorry. I'm not that bright. One day as the press photographers were shuffling to get a close-up of Mona entering the courthouse, one guy was unfortunate enough to trip and bump into her. In a flash, her demeanor flipped. The diabolical diva shouted at the terrified guy and spat a thick glob of saliva onto his arm. She might as well have spat acid. The poor guy was so legitimately terrified that this cursed saliva might be the end of him that he dumped his gear on the ground and rushed off to the toilets to clean it off. Better safe than sorry, I guess. Even if Mona was killed by the state, there was a real concern that her vengeful spirit could linger on after she was gone. If your name happened to be in her bad books when that happens, well, goodbye and good luck. Maybe the judge is just so afraid he's like, yeah, I believe in all this witchcraft shift. We better let her go. It's like, no. Come on, judge. I'm assuming they don't have a jury. I just feel like a country which executes, you know, drug smugglers and murderers as on a mandatory basis i don't think there's a mandatory mandate mandatory doesn't matter like, i get the feeling they're not gonna have trial by jury it's just gonna be a judge he's gonna be like yeah guilty and death but of course this was a court of law it didn't deal in ghost stories good the goal was to get to the bottom of the actual facts of the case which risked being drowned in superstition the physical evidence told a much simpler story 18 choice cuts of human found on the property of the two accused found via a direct confession from the third pretty clean cut yeah i would say so the main confusion which remained was focused on just who was responsible for the death itself the middle-aged shaman couple turned on their assistant claiming that jeremy was the one who decided to spice up their perfectly harmless ritual with an impromptu beheading certainly spices things up apparently he had just read the wrong wikihow article for flower baths because customers usually leave them with their heads attached to hear mona and a fandy tell it they were shocked with this snap decision to kill the politician although obviously not that shocked because they then lifted the guy's bank cards out of his wallet and calmed their nerves with a brand new benz that much was proven by testimony from the shopkeepers and bank clerks who attested to having seen mona and a fandy in the days after the killing one of them uh, Kuala Lumpur jeweler got the fright of his life when giving his testimony. As the man listed the items the couple bought that day in his native Hokkien language, a language from China commonly spoken by many Chinese ethnics in Southeast Asia, our number one Boma made a surprise interjection in the same tongue. I know what you're saying you're lying the witness looked like he might die of fright then and there but the facts don't lie this indiscreet spending spree all but guaranteed their guilt given that you'd have to assume that jeremy's version of events was probably a little closer to the truth he claimed that he'd killed the politician on the orders of his employers actually what he really said was that he was under a trance brought about by black magic i'm definitely keeping that ace up my sleeve if i get nicked no your honor it was a witch's hex that made me down 20 jaeger bombs and piss on that police car <laughs> yeah i don't think pretending to be cursed is a defense <laughs> Whatever the motive, Jeremy was under no illusions that it was his hands that dealt the fatal blows. He told the court, I chopped his neck three times to separate the head from the body. I also cut Maslin's body into pieces before burying his remains. His claims of diminished responsibility, on the other hand, were dubious. However, many present probably believed such a thing to be very much possible. Case in point, one of the strangest news stories to come out of the trial was that the celebrity Bomber was trying to cast a hex over the proceedings.
This is so bizarre. When the forensic pathologist who recovered the body was called to the stand to describe the remains of the victim, a strange, eerie sound rang around the courtroom. Two otherworldly groans, almost as if the ghost of the dead man himself had come back to take the stand. The pathologist stopped immediately as everyone in the room looked around wide-eyed for the source of the sound. Meanwhile, Mona Fandy sat with her eyes fixed on the dock, unblinking, unmoving. The crowd in the gallery collectively shuddered. Some even walked out right then and there. I mean, who wants to get caught in the crossfire of a curse. The next day, one Bahang newspaper ran a story on the front page describing the sound as something like a duck call and even went as far as interviewing Mona's neighbors about the event. Some claimed to have heard the exact same sound emanating from the remote house on the hillside or the KL mansion whenever Mona Fandy performed her black magic rituals. Spooky stuff. Yeah, I mean, sort of, but also there's going to be an entirely rational re- explanation. Because of course there is. Or maybe not. The more level-headed reporters who were present that day realized that the sound was probably just the creaking of the gallery benches as the crowd leaned forward to hear the pathologist's quiet voice. The second one was probably just when they all got a fright and leaned back again. But if you have enough believers in one place primed by fear and feeding off each other's superstition, the dark world of spirits and magic can actually appear as real as the hand in front of your face. Does this mean that Mona's magic would ultimately save the day as she levitates out of the window cackling like a maniac well no of course not don't be daft curtains down this eerie tension hung over the majority of the trial which saw 65 days of evidence from 76 witnesses in total did it i mean do we need all these witnesses? It seems pretty cut and dry. I mean, how far are we going to bang this home? And if Mona Fandy really was looking to cast a magic spell over the proceedings, she seems like she failed pretty miserably. On the 9th of February 1995, the foreman of the jury. Oh, they do have a jury! Shit. I totally expected it to just be a judge thing. Well, there you go. I'm wrong. Reached after only 70 minutes of deliberation, Mona Fandy, Afandi Abdul Rahman, and Jarami Hassin were all found guilty. Even when those fatal words were read out, the two bombers kept on smiling, seemingly unfazed by the fact that their lives would be coming to an end sooner rather than later. The next time they found themselves in that courtroom, it was for sentencing death by hanging as expected. Yeah, it's mandatory. Do they really need to have a sentence? I guess it's like a formality. But also, they didn't technically murder him. They were just like accomplices to the murder, I guess. But maybe they have that, like, I don't know, whatever the Malaysian equivalent of the gang law is, where it's like, yo, in British law, and I'm not entirely sure if this is correct, but it's like, yo, if you're hanging out with your friend and your friend murders someone and you reasonably foresaw that he could murder someone, um, I believe you're guilty of murder as well. Or maybe you need to also want to hurt the other person. That might be it. You need to want to do GBH on that person as well. Something like that. But you basically, you could be convicted of murder without actually being the one who committed the murder. Um, and then in Malaysia, that means you get hung. Or hanged? It's hanged, right? But what wasn't expected was Mona's bizarre reaction. She embraced her husband in the dock, kissed him, and later declared, I'm happy with the decision. I want to thank all Malaysians. I love all the people. I love Fandy, her husband. Sorry, Mona, did you hear properly? They're going to kill you. You're acting like you're just one X Factor. Apparently, this murderous shaman pop star was just thrilled with the idea of being hanged by the neck until dead. Yeah, indeed, like that narcissism over insignificance. Again, here we are. Amnesty International was less ecstatic. They and other humanitarian NGOs urged their supporters to join a letter writing campaign to the Sultan of Pahang and King of Malaysia 
to have him commute the death sentences. Look, Amnesty International, on the people who are smuggling drugs who are being sentenced to death in other countries, how about we focus on that? Or, you know, I don't know, people being sentenced to death for crimes that they didn't commit, or much more minor crimes than murdering a random dude with an axe in the forest and then burying him under concrete. I mean, I don't like. I don't want to be like, yeah, death penalty's right, and Amnesty International shouldn't have done this. I just feel like maybe Amnesty International, your attention could be better focused elsewhere. Mona's defense team also launched appeals up to the highest level, but in 1999, their very final attempt was dismissed. The death sentence was upheld at the federal level. And so, the executions were scheduled for the 2nd of November, 2001. Ever the entertainer, our Boma Queen, believed that the show must go on right until the very end. All that's left is to look at the very last chapter in her strangely fascinating life the execution itself. For a story wrapped up in so much supernatural myth and media sensation, the ending is actually quite intimate. Yeah, and I realize uh, I, I also, you know, I'm such a skeptic. I'm like, none of this supernatural, like, witchcraft and all this stuff is just such bullshit. And I realize that you've probably been listening to this episode and getting a little tired of Simon just calling this nonsense every 30 seconds, so I apologize for that. It probably was a bit much. Let's just move on to, you know, this intimate execution if that's brilliant <laughs> really on the day before they were set to be killed mona fandy and her husband were allowed an eight-hour visit with their family at kajang prison a last chance to share some time with their children both from their current and previous marriages prison officials reported that there were tears all round as the clock reached the end of visiting hours and the condemned passed on their final messages to their children take care of yourselves and grow up to be good people. Despite her creepy reputation, the celebrity Beaumont was never shy about showing the softer side, even during the very public court proceedings. She was clearly a people person, fond of lavishing praise upon her husband and fans at any opportunity. Had her singing career gone a little better, it's not difficult to imagine her as a beloved pop princess, gracious, glamorous, beloved by all. But of course, the fairy tale monster she became was a very, very different character. When it came time to greet the hangman, Mona Fandy decided to leave one last creepy message for the people of Malaysia to remember her by, one that would haunt their dreams for years to come. Before the first light of dawn on November the 2nd, 2001, Mona Fandy and Jeremy were woken and fitted with hoods and handcuffs. They were then led out of their holding cells into the execution chamber adjacent. The prison doctor and warden were already waiting inside. They were alongside Justice Department officials, all of whom watched as the three killers were led up onto the wooden platform of the gallows. Three nooses hung from the beam overhead. The convicts were positioned over the trapdoors with their legs bound together, then the ropes were fixed tight around their necks. The executioners made their final checks and awaited the signal to begin. It was reported that in those final moments, Mona Fendi uttered the ominous words, Aku Tak Akan Mati. I will never die. And then she died. <laughs> Savage Callum. Wrap up. At 5.59 a.m., the platform dropped out from beneath the three condemned killers' feet. All three died instantly as the rope snapped tight. They were left hanging for an hour before being taken down. Not sure if that's common practice or if it's a specific anti-witch procedure. And then they put a silver, uh, uh, blah, what's it called? A stake, silver stake through their heart. They didn't really do that. I made that up. The star of the show was 45 at the time of her death, a husband a year younger, and their assistant only 31. If any superstitious folks were waiting for her surprise escape and or resurrection, then they're still waiting. The story of Mona Fandy ended that day at the prison. Still, though, her legacy remains as do those famous last words. As a reward for her efforts, Mona Fandy was rewarded with the thing that she coveted most, 
fame. Her name is widely known to this day, 20 years after her death. A petty kind of immortality, but I guess it'll have to do. It's called Herostratic Fame, or Herostratic Fame, I believe. I made a video about this, and the guy who's called maybe Herodotus, who uh, burned down a temple just so it'd be remembered which uh, is pretty crazy, but, you know, narcissism over death, I suppose, again. Or maybe we can take that statement a little more literally. Mona's abandoned mansion southwest of Kale in Section 12, Shah Alam, has actually become something of a ghost-hunting hotspot. Oof, I hate all this bull****. It's apparently so haunted that even some of the bravest Ghostbusters dare and enter. Aside from the dark energies and creatures lingering there, locals claim to have actually seen Mona's spirit, still strong after manifest appearing in the windows. Likewise, she's also been spotted wandering around the prison where she died. Some people have even come forward to report seeing her on the dance floors in Kuala Lumpur nightclubs. Good to see the old gal is living her best afterlife. But let's forget all of that for a moment, because the more important thing is this. At the heart of any supernatural murder story is this darker truth. All that malice and violence actually came from flesh-and-blood people, not the poor ghosts and monsters who often end up taking the flack for humanity's horribleness. Yeah, all of this basically boils down to, is a greedy woman killed a guy who was not going to give her a lot of money in the woods so she'd still get a lot of money and then they buried the body and then they spent it on a mercedes it is so ordinary it is so boring it is so take away all the witchcraft and stuff it's just a regular old murder and uh yeah human's gonna human depressing strip away all the superstition you have a simple tale of narcissism and greed yeah i said boring it's not boring it's an interesting story uh but it is it is simple i think that's a better way of describing it and that's why callum is the writer for this channel and i'm just a reader <laughs> For Malaysia's most glamorous bomber, witchcraft was just another route to riches and acclaim, and in the end, so was murder. She and her husband thought their own wealth was more important than the life of an innocent man. And if the rumors are to be believed, he may not have been the only victim. Is it possible that other members of Malaysian high society fell prey to the couple's deadly cons in the past, but the bodies were never found? Maybe these are just baseless rumors spun around unconnected missing persons cases, or maybe there are some genuine leads left unfollowed. After all, some grieving widows might want to keep things hush-hush to save attaching their family's name to this crazy infamous case yeah i mean the person got executed so it's like what other outcome are you hoping for here that's all speculation on my part so please take it with a pinch of salt mixed with an eye of newt and three drops of goat's blood we'll almost never know for sure whether there are more bodies out there and sadly mona fandy herself wasn't available for comments <laughs> scallon these are savage man maybe one of you out there can sort out a seance to get to the bottom of this matter once and for all don't do that that is sarcasm in closing if you've been affected by any of the issues in today's program well call an imam or something i would entangle with no bomber dismembered appendices Number 1. The case of Mona Fandi left a huge impact on Malaysian culture and media, and also on the country's legal system. The craziness of the whole courtroom affair was actually partly to blame for the abolishment of trial by jury on the 1st of January 1995. Wow, okay, so they had trial by jury and then they got rid of it. The official reasons cited were problems in getting people to attend jury duty and the fact that they were easily manipulated by the underhand tactics of defense teams slash evil wizard ladies. Number two, five years after the execution, filming for a movie version of the story got underway. The production was stuck in limbo for years because of problems with the country's media censors. It was finally released back in 2018. After more than a decade on the shelf, it's entitled Dakun. Number three, if you want a bit more insight into the role of bombers in Malaysia,
Nature, this is my favorite anecdote. In 2014, millionaire witch doctor Ibrahim Matt Zinn made a spectacle of himself at KL Airport by rocking a pair of bamboo binoculars, waving coconuts in the air, and chanting the Quran. The boastful Bomark claimed that it would help find the Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. Much of the Malaysian youth collectively cringed at his nonsense on Twitter, as you should be cringing right now, because obviously it's crazy crazy and also they didn't find that plane so it didn't work and the disappearance of that plane is so crazy it's just missing still wild they found part of it though didn't they which i mean it's probably not good news i mean it's definitely not good news the plane is gone it's it's you know it's not landed somewhere secretly has it although i'm sure there are conspiracy theories out there talking about absolutely that stuff because of course there are finally number four and lastly in recent years mona fandy herself has enjoyed something of a resurrection in the twitter sphere and not as a bad guy fed up with stories of corrupt money-hungry politicians some malaysians have turned mona fandy into a meme a symbol of revolt against corruption not sure i'd want a murder witch leading my revolution but i guess i can appreciate the sentiment and with that i hope you appreciated this episode of the casual premise we've had like a very long one actually uh, if you did please do if you're watching this uh, please do like the video make sure you subscribe to the channel if you're listening to this as a podcast it'd be fantastic if you left it a review uh five stars preferred but honestly give it what you think it deserves and yeah that just helps get the show in front of more people i mean obviously if you give it a one star it's probably not apple are going to be like well let's not show that to people but if you give it a good review i'm sure it does so that would be fantastic thank you for listening or watching however you're doing this and i'll see you in the next episode Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.